If you would, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, um, you should talk to us. We'd love to help you get a Bible. I think there's even some at the very back. Um, If you just forgot yours, that's fine. We'll, We'll have on the screen the text. We are, we are preaching through First and Second Samuel, starting at the beginning and marching to the end. Uh, one of the virtues of, of moving that way instead of, instead of topically or um, jumping around a bit is uh, that it makes you preach hard stuff. And that's, uh, honestly, there's a, there's a chunk here that I might try to swerve around just because it's a little uncomfortable. Um, but... Here we are. So we're in 1 Samuel 15. Um, and I'll, I'll explain what comes before and after this. Um, but I'm just going to read. I think we have on the screen starting at verse 17. Is that what I told him? Mm. I should pay more attention to what I tell people. I don't want to mess you up. Okay, you'll catch up to me. One way or another. Yeah, forget it. Okay. Samuel is speaking with Saul. That's who you need to know. These are some of the, the he's. The, the he's and they's are the Amalekites and the things that Saul should have done and he has not done. He said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, as the Lord as great... Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Would you pray with me? 
God, we pray that our hearts would be open before you. And where our hearts are stony and closed, we pray that your word would pierce us, that we would be exposed before you. God, we pray that your word would make us into better and better lovers of you. Let us see you, behold you, and adore you. For of this you're worthy. Amen. Saul is the first king of Israel. Against Samuel's better recommendation, against the warnings of God to Israel through Samuel. And quickly we've seen Saul's reign start to go off the, the tracks. He, he has some victories. He has some successes. Um, even here he has some success. And yet there are these very clear signs that Saul is not who Israel needs him to be. This passage uh, starts with possibly uh, one of the most uncomfortable commandments in the Old Testament. This is at the beginning of chapter 15. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amalek, what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have done. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. I think uh, maybe what you would like, what, what maybe I would like, is if there is some secret code in the Hebrew that doesn't mean this in English. And all I can tell you is, this is a good translation. And it says what it says. This is, uh, this, is, this is hard, hard to hear. What do you do with this? What can you do with this? There are, there are other commands uh, earlier in, than this. Uh, that Israel would go and, and conquer, that Israel would go and push people out of the land. Um, so this is not the first time something appears like this, but this is, this is different. Before Israel is commanded to attack these, what reads like cities for us, which is more like military outposts, like Jericho was not a striving, I mean a thriving metropolis. It was a small settlement with mostly men that fought. Um, that's why Israel could walk around it pretty quickly. But this is different. This is Israel going out of the land, in a sense, to go wage war on these particular people. And Israel's actually told that they'll have to do this hundreds of years earlier in the book of Deuteronomy. God says near the end, I have not forgotten the Amalekites and what they've done to Israel. Because Amalek had, had accosted Israel on their exodus and their wanderings uh, from Egypt to the promised land. And God says, I have not forgotten. It's been a long time, but I will not forget. And here, in a sense, the bill is coming due. Amalek will be judged for what they've done. Now, there are things going on here that we don't quite see. For one, um, they do say, kill everybody that is there. But what we don't know is who actually is there. 
So the command is to devote everything to destruction, but where they are going to execute this destruction, we don't know if these are communities that are full of people, young and old, men and women, uh, whether these are you know, collections of primary schools and what have you that Israel is just sort of mowing through. And what we also know is that they do mostly what they're supposed to, and they, they do end up by the end of this chapter doing what they're supposed to do, devoting to destruction. Um, we also know that they didn't find every single Amalekite out there and kill them. We know this because the Amalekites show up again at the, by the end of the book. So whoever they did this to and wherever they did this, this was not a com- complete elimination of the people of Amalek. David himself in chapter 27 of 1 Samuel, he'll raid the Amalekites who are somehow still there. And even further down in biblical history, we see that Haman in the book of Esther is actually descended of the Amalekites. So there was obviously enough people there uh, for, to produce descendants. It's still hard though. It's still hard. How do we hear this instruction from God and reckon with it? We have to understand that this is a particular segment of redemptive history and that we do not live in this era. It's important to understand. If you come to me and say, uh, God's told me to go wipe people out, I'm calling the police and you're, you're going to a hospital because I just... You are not a prophet of God appointed to the people of Israel through whom singularly God's redemptive plan is contained. That era does not exist anymore. You are not uh, the appointed prophet of God. So there is, should be, when we read this text, there should be no um, fear. Well, what if God wants to do this again? Well, we just say, but he doesn't. He doesn't do this anymore. It's just as the people of God now read the command to kill sheep and bulls and burn the fat and smatter the blood. And we say, yeah, you don't have to do that anymore. Similarly, we read this text now and say, this is, this is in the past. And this is a different era. Okay, but it's still there. It's still there. Now, some people have tried uh, to, to sort of do things with the text to basically say, well, what if Israel is mistaken? What if, yeah, Samuel really thought he heard this? And Scripture is telling us that Samuel thought he heard this, but what if he was just wrong? And he actually just was a crazy guy that heard voices. What if Israel is just reporting what they wanted to do? And that we cannot do. That then is a whole different approach to what Scripture is saying and what Scripture is. What we, we have to allow when we come to Scripture, and especially when we come to the Old Testament, is we have to concede that God may not always do and say things that we are comfortable with. If God never, ever has standards that are different than ours, never, ever has plans that are different than ours, then it is likely that we have made God to be in our image. 
But God is who he is. There is a sense, and I do think this is the right way to understand this, that God does something singular and special and unique in this circumstance. That God brings forward in time what is waiting for all people. What I mean is this. Scripture is is very clear. The wages of sin is death. Every person will die. I'm sorry if this is news to you. You're going to die. You're all going to die. Hopefully many, many years from now, but you're all going to die. And that's because we live in a world that is broken and fraught with sin. It is Things are not working as they should. Sin leads to death. And what God has done is He has moved up that punishment in time. And saying instead of these people getting another 40, 50, 60 years, they will die today. Now, That is frightening that God might be able to do that. But it is a clear and sobering reminder that it is no trifling thing to be ensnared by sin. Sin is a bloody, bloody mess. And it ruins Everything. And the sin of the Amalekites is not just something that happens from outside of them. It is something that comes from within them as well. There are victims here. Animals, children, and there are, haven't we seen, victims of sin. And there are participants here. Men and women who've given themselves over to sin. Do not underestimate the truth that God hates sin. Not because He hates people, but because He loves people. And sin ruins people that He's made. The death sentence, the judgment that He pronounces on these people, the singular special event in time, This is not about their genetics. This is not because the Amalekites are gross or racially less than. These people serve as an existential threat to Israel because of the gods that they worship and the lives that they live. Worship, sin, they are far more meaningful and important than often we account for. Look, I I can't make this text something that you just are comfortable with. Because I, I don't think you should be comfortable. I think it should unsettle you. Oftentimes the Old Testament is doing this. It's conveying and telling this story that should deeply trouble us. And we'll see that this standard, it does not just apply to Amalekites. God holds His own people, holds Israel to this same standard. We'll see it in this same story. 
You know, we sang this song, Your glory is so beautiful. And it's true. Objectively, God is the most beautiful person in the universe. And the presence of God, the glory of God, is what you were meant to behold. He's made you for that. Yet the Old Testament will consistently say to Israel, to us, the glory of God is dangerous. God is in some sense dangerous. And you cannot treat God as if he is the pretty ficus that you put in your house. If he's a piece of furniture or even a safe little puppy that you can get comfort from. He is far more dangerous than that. Something must happen so that people can be close to him safely. Saul here, an Israelite, in the command to execute justice on behalf of God, serves as an example of this. Saul leads his people into battle. They do what they are supposed to do, except they reserve something for themselves. Samuel finds Saul after the battle and says, did you do what you were commanded to do? And Saul says, I did it. And Samuel says, then why do I hear the bleeding of sheep? And he's busted. And immediately Saul does hear what he's done previously. He blame shifts and he said, it's those people, you know, those people, they saved those animals for sacrifice. Conveniently, they are now for sacrifice. Immediately, he could have said, yeah, we did it pretty much, and, but then we saved some for sacrifice. His answer is, his story has now changed from, yes, we did everything we're supposed to, to those people, they've saved some stuff for sacrifice. And Samuel confronts him and said, what God wants is obedience more than what he wants in sacrifice. We saw that in our call to worship today from Psalm 40 as well. And this is a repeated theme from the prophets. Because Israel will continue to come before God and say, look, we're doing all of the religious ceremonies that you've asked us to do. And the prophets will look at them and say, but you have not obeyed God and cared for the poor. What God wants is obedience more than He wants sacrifice. Sacrifice is to cover, to atone for your disobedience. Obey God. And Saul becomes desperate with Samuel because Samuel is just going to leave him exposed before the people. He grasps for him and rips Samuel's cloak. And Samuel uses this as an illustration. He says, God is ripping the kingdom from you. One of your neighbors become king, the neighbor whom we'll meet next time. Saul decides that God is worth obeying to the degree that he wants to obey. That is Saul's problem. It's his continual problem. Saul decides that he is not just king over his family, over Israel, Saul ultimately sets himself up as king over God. I take on your suggestion, but I will be king the way that I want to be king. And this, of course, is a great danger 
that all of us find ourselves in. This is the temptation throughout all of Scripture. Adam and Eve taking the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, the, the, the ability, the power to decide what is good and evil and saying, I will be the kind of king that I want to be. And we decide the degree to which God deserves and merits obedience. And we think if we can get away with it, this is not a big deal. If we do get caught, you know, nobody's perfect, right? Maybe God was a bit unreasonable. Maybe, maybe my way is better. When we do that, we operate in the world in a way that we were never meant to operate. That kind of grasping for power, that treasonous assertion of rights is, is the infection of brokenness. It's the spreading of it. It's damaging. And all ultimately, it's killing. Because you and I were made to be subject to the good and right king over all the earth. You and I were made to live in obedience to this king because he knows better and is better than you and I. Minor disobedience is never minor. It is always destructive. When we see the Amalekites receiving the sword, and when we see Saul having his generations ripped out from him. We are meant to read the text and be sobered, be reminded every moment that we stand before God on our own two feet as the one who decides what should and should not be obeyed, every moment that we stand like that and we are not killed for our treason, is a moment of mercy. We think that mercy is normal. It's what we deserve. That is not mercy. Somehow we believe that God is obligated to give us this thing that we call mercy. But mercy is mercy. It is unmerited passing over. It is giving to us what we don't deserve. Every moment that we stand and breathe before God while we shake our fist at Him, every moment we draw breath and do it more is a moment of grace and kindness. And often we spit on that kindness. We think it's common and unremarkable. But it is remarkable. And Israel will fail this test again and again and again. The rest of their history in the Old Testament will be failing this test. And again, if somebody was writing a story of our lives, would we not also fail this test again and again and again? We treat God as an option. 
and mercy as our right. But Israel will not always have a king like this. Where there's hints here of, of a king that will receive the throne, the, one of the most important people in Israel's history, a man after God's heart. And yet the text will very clearly unveil to us that he is also a man who is weak to his core. Even that king, the greatest king in Israel's history, will treat God like this. As has every single person ever. Except for one king who would finally and fully obey every single command that God would lay down. God's intention for for the people of Israel, God's intention for the plan of redemption reaches its fullness and its clarity in the king who hears every command from God and does not even to the smallest degree swerve his way around them. Jesus becomes the king of Israel that hears the commands of God and enters into them fully even when the command for justice to come is that justice would come on himself. Because this is the surprising move that God ultimately intends to make. This is the reason why God intends and does preserve Israel for so long, despite all their disobedience, that somehow, surprisingly, what God wants to do is to, as he told Abraham, bless all the peoples of the earth, including the Amalekites. So he preserves and protects Israel unexpectedly, surprisingly, not just for the benefit of Israel, but for the benefit of all people ever that this singular king of Israel would become the only true and faithful Israelite, the only true and faithful king, so that God might defer judgment and defer judgment and defer judgment, and then finally to bring wrath down on all of this terrible, terrible sin that ruins the world that he's made at the act of a true and faithful and good and just king. He allows justice to fall and he brings it down on himself. Saul is us. We imperfectly embody what we are meant to be as humans and Jesus becomes the king that we've always needed. We always are a people full of fickleness faithlessly choosing how we might obey God. We should be the Amalekites. We are meant to look at the beginning of 1 Samuel 15 and say, that should be me. But Jesus will be the king who walks into the seat of judgment that instead of judgment being poured out on all who watch, it would be mercy instead. And Jesus would be the one who is given the fullness of the kingdom And his garment will be ripped as well. But instead of that symbolizing the rending of the kingdom from him, it'll be the powers of hell itself that are ripped apart. 
And, and his robe, his whole and complete and unified and clean robe, the, the right ruling, reigning robe, it will be given to all of the people who would see him and behold him and trust in him. So when God's fullest and most perfect justice is displayed, it is with Israelites and Gentiles, all of those who should come under the judgment of God, looking at him and uttering in amazement, truly this was the Son of God. God moves towards mercy always. And in Jesus, he secures mercy fully and finally for all of those who would put their trust in Him. God never stops being this perfectly just God who says that treasonous sin merits death. But He never stops being Himself. Merciful and kind and compassionate. Taking upon Himself that full just judgment and bringing us into his kingdom. If you are here this morning and you have ruled your own life, pretending foolishly like you are a good boss, or thinking that you know better, thinking that 80% of trying hard is all that really God wants, and that all that really matters, you are meant to be reminded this morning that kind of life is not okay and it is dangerous. It is dangerous. It is not the way that you were meant to live. But the cross stands in front of you. The cross stands in front of you because God intends to show mercy to you. And the good news is that if you are here today and you have looked at the cross and you've received your hope in the mercy and justice of God as displayed in Jesus Christ, even though this sort of fickle, treasonous behavior still dots your life, you cannot get away from this. You can look at the cross and rest in comfort knowing that judgment has already been proclaimed over you. The work of Jesus fully and finally secures your position before Him so that the word that God speaks to you is always and only mercy. This is so astounding that you and I can forget it so easily I should be a Christian. I should be better. I should be over this. And you are never going to be over this. And the cross is always going to be enough. God will not change what He thinks about you. Because as Samuel said, the glory of Israel is not like a man who changes his mind. And the cross he has made his decision about you and welcomes you into his family. Sin does not get to have the last word. The mercy of God over judgment does. What you must do 
is you must trust Jesus to be that sufficient king. You must trust Jesus with all your failure. Do not hide from him. And do not think that you can set things right. And let him spread his robe over you and clothe you in his righteousness and declare this word of mercy over you forever and always. Forgiven because of the great love of God. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you spare us. You have mercy on us. You delight in having mercy on us, your people. God, we, we know deep in our guts that we deserve judgment. You do not have to teach a child to hide their sin. They do it naturally. And something in us, the parts of us that we normally hide from everyone, something tells us we deserve the sword. And yet, God, you bring the sword on yourself. I pray, God, that all of us would get a clear glimpse of the cross this morning. Be we far from you or near to you, that our eyes this morning would catch a clear glimpse of what you say and do at your cross, that we would see our king enthroned there, that we would see our king in obedience, doing what no king could do for us, We see our king there crowned with suffering. Jesus, you are bigger and stronger than all of our treason. You are bigger and better. I pray that you would draw us all closer in that. And we would delight in the work that you do for us, confident that you have done all that is necessary for all of our lives and indeed for all of eternity. It is finished in you. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. Help us to believe. Help our unbelief. Amen.